0: topics discussed are for educational purposes only now welcome integrative dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu
1: welcome to episode 126 of the naturally nourished podcast Today's episode, we are going into how you can rock out the anti-anxiety diet. It has been so amazing hearing all of the awesome feedback from the readers of my book, The Anti-Anxiety Diet, and I wanted to put out an episode to assist all of you who have read it, but maybe having a difficult time implementing my anti-anxiety diet program, as well as to provide for those of you who have yet to purchase the book uh, inspiration of why this would be a powerful tool in balancing your mood and optimizing
2: your mental health. Yes, I think literally every day I hear from a client whose life has been changed by applying the principles of the anti anxiety diet. This is from people who come to me, you know, after being keto for a long time and who are now focusing on more abundance and therapeutic foods those who are removing dairy and finding positive outcomes in mood shifts and mental clarity, and those who are playing with tighter carb control, as well as those who are applying the adrenal protocol, and honestly, so much more. So I think we should probably read some reviews on here because it's been a while since we've done this.
1: Yes, yes. And I was actually digging back into my Amazon book reviews to try to see areas when I was preparing for today's episode, if there were any weak points or areas of increased need. Luckily, the anti-anxiety diet is five out of five stars. Yay! But, uh, <laughs> yes. But if you have read it and you haven't left a review, it would be so, oh, so helpful. I'm really hoping to get over 100 reviews in the next month. Um, so we'll definitely put a link in the show notes for you to leave your own review. But some of the favorites that I pulled. Um, The first one is by Natalie CC. And she said, your book, podcast, and the virtual ketosis program has changed my life literally 180 degrees for the better. In parentheses, way better. (laughs) And I certainly spread the word and hope everyone jumps on the keto real food change.
2: Mind blown. I love it. And then this one is from Meg347. By Implementing the anti-anxiety diet and starting supplementation in the gut lining support section, along with calm and clear, I have successfully weaned off my antidepressant. Not only am I drug free, but for the first time in a long time, I feel like myself again, grounded, clear thoughts and able to connect with people and actually feel. I'm so grateful for you and your work to put together such a valuable resource.
1: Oh, I love that. And that's one of my favorite testimonials. When people say, I feel like myself again. <laughs> it's like such a esoteric concept, right, of feeling quote unquote better or whatnot, but feeling this kind of authentic connection to the self and the expression of emotions and the ability to feel um, I think is such a powerful thing that many people that struggle with anxiety and depression don't get to experience because their medication may in some sense numb to try to prevent the the more extreme symptoms. So I think that that's a really powerful one for sure. Okay, we'll read one more. <laughs> yes. Um, So Coley One um, says uh, her review name was amazingly informative plus practical guides plus recipes. She says, I couldn't put this book down for a few reasons. One, it is easy to read and clearly explains the science behind the gut-brain access and discusses many common health issues that millions of people suffer with, parentheses, leaky gut, adrenal fatigue, sensitivities, etc. Two, it contains assessments to see where your anxiety and other health issues stem from. Three, the recipes, supplement guides, and shopping lists are fantastic. This book focuses on keto and low-carb, nourishing foods, and explains what foods are helpful for certain health issues and why. I love that instead of some of the keto advocates that have promoted eat meat and cheese all day, she focuses on whole, nourishing foods that promote healing, not a yes or no food list. I love it. Coley. you get me.
2: (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh, I love it. So again, you guys, I'll put a link in the show notes, but if you have read The Anti-Anxiety Diet and have not yet left a review, we would really appreciate you popping on over to Amazon and leaving a five-star review along with a couple of sentences of why you loved the book and how it has changed your life so we can continue to get it into the hands of people who need it.
1: Absolutely. So important. And that really helps with the algorithms when people are searching for a solution for the anti-anxiety diet to get put on their radar. And so it's really a way that if you feel this is a helpful tool, you can empower your community personally by sharing on your page, you know, pictures of you reading it and making sure you tag at Ali Miller RD or directly going on to Amazon and leaving a review so people that are online can find it as a platform as well.
2: Awesome. So I know we've both been a little bit entrenched in the anti anxiety cookbook, which I know we'll talk more about because we're getting really pumped about that release, although it probably won't be out till September. Yes. Um, <laughs> which will be here before we know it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that a little later, but first I want to lay some foundation as we're, you know, getting new listeners every day. And maybe you haven't read or haven't heard of the anti anxiety. Diet book yet. Um, so let's talk about um, why you wrote this b- book in the first place and cover your six foundational Rs.
1: Sure. So the anti-anxiety diet is a book book, <laughs> as Becky said. And uh, it does have 50 recipes in it, but it is written more as a really deep scientific navigation of the understanding of how our body responds to stress. And so my practice as a functional medicine clinician, in the past decade of my work, I have worked with imbalances in hormones. I have worked with micronutrient deficiencies. I have worked a lot with gut and digestive distress, whether it's leaky gut or SIBO or candidiasis or dysbiosis forms of bacteria overgrowth. I have dug deep into autoimmune disease, including conditions that influence the thyroid like Hashimoto's and adrenal fatigue. And in my clinical experience, I've really found that whether I'm treating leaky gut or whether I'm doing a gut cleanse or whether I am working with someone to support their sleep and their energy pathways – if anxiety is not managed or if they are in overdrive of their HPA access, that fight or flight access, that this dysregulation is going to serve as the Achilles heel or the weak point of their body. So if they are treating leaky gut, but they're still dealing with racing thoughts and difficulty concentrating. We may be able to repair the leaky gut and we may be able to remove the inflammatory foods, but chances are we're only going to see another symptom or undesired effect pop up. So I really find anxiety to be the Achilles heel of chronic illness and my position with this book was to dig deep into the functional medicine entry points that can drive anxiety or imbalanced HPA axis, or that can aid with resolution. So my six R's that I take you through as a journey in the anti-anxiety diet are to remove inflammatory foods, reset the gut microbiome, repair the gut lining, restore micronutrient status, rebound the adrenal glands, and then finally to rebalance your neurotransmitters.
2: And the really cool thing is that each chapter is going to have a quiz to aid in navigating for the reader so they know where they need to dig deeper into one or more of these R's. It'll have supplement or lab support for their specific entry point. And then you talk about in each chapter, some of the big aha, why connections of that area of focus and mechanism of action or role of active nutrients of focus. And then you include food as medicine, therapeutic recipe focus as well.
1: Yeah, so you know, I I wrote it in a flow that makes sense. You know, you you want to probably start with removing the inflammatory foods, and I know we'll get deep into that today because today we're going to focus about the diet component of the anti anxiety diet, right? Uh, but it's so important. You're right, Becky. As far as you know, someone who is breastfeeding a child, for instance, may need to really hone in on that. Restoring micronutrients because they just grew another human, right? And they're still providing an increased demand on a nutritional level via breastfeeding and someone who had to evacuate, evacuate their home, you know, from hurricane season may be really honing into or going through a really gnarly divorce or job change may really need to hone into that rebounding adrenals. So each person reading this is going to have, like you said, different aha moments and connections of what entry point sings stronger. And that's where really I would recommend honing in on a supplement strategy. And then the food as medicine is very rounded and uh, overlaps within all of these R trigger points, but there will be therapeutic foods to highlight in the areas of higher need and focus.
2: Totally. And today we won't get into every single chapter because that would be a very long-winded, I think, podcast. Um, But we won't go into leaky gut and microbiome. We actually did cover that back in an episode on the gut-brain connection that I'll make sure that we post in today's show notes. But I really, really want to hone in on... Diet specifically. So, really, maybe chapter two, which is removing inflammatory foods. So, I guess um, let's talk about what the diet component of the anti anxiety diet is.
1: Yeah. So, if today's episode is how you can rock it out, (laughs) you need to know where you're going in your compass, right? So, uh, the anti anxiety diet pairs both the removal of the five top inflammatory foods and one of the foods that's removed is going to be sugar. So that sets up the foundation for use of a ketogenic diet. So in simplistic terms, aside from, like you said, the therapeutics of like bone broth and gelatin for leaky gut or high vitamin C for the adrenals, the the most simplistic way of looking at the diet is an anti-inflammatory diet that layers on food as medicine approach with nutritional ketosis. So I enter in the reader for a 12-week period of time that the diet is going to be free of what I identify as the top five pro-inflammatory foods. And the important connection here is that inflammation, you know, can definitely drive an impact on our neurotransmitters. So we remove these five inflammatory foods for 12 weeks. And um, during the first six weeks of this, I recommend that you layer on a ketogenic eating plan, which I call phase one. So I have phase one and very similar to the language I use so that I don't confuse my followers (laughs) in my virtual food as medicine ketosis program, where phase two eating is going to be more of a low glycemic diet. And phase one is going to be a strict ketogenic diet at 30 grams of carbs total, not net. Um, And so those 30 grams of carbs, again, are coming from residual non-carbohydrate-centric foods. So these are the 30 grams that are coming up from, for instance, half an avocado having six to eight grams of carbs or um you know our nut butters and nuts and seeds or our other non-starchy vegetables like asparagus or bell peppers. So I recommend that the reader do 12 weeks of elimination of five pro-inflammatory foods, gluten, corn, soy, sugar and dairy and we'll get into each of those and why. And then also during that period of time to do strict ketosis and after that sixth week is when I start to teach the reader about how they might play with what works best for their carb intake as far as whether they transition to low glycemic phase two, whether they dance in more of a phase 1.5 and just liberalize their total carbs because based on maybe their activity or based on their demands, they can still stay into light ketosis at 45 grams of carbs. Um, And I give you guidance on what your ideal is after you've experienced that tight carb
2: control. Awesome. And then let's get into a little bit further of why reducing inflammatory foods matters or why targeting particular foods of elimination. Why does this matter for addressing anxiety and mental health? What's the connection?
1: So there is a known and acknowledged brain-gut access in the medical world, and it's very new, um, so it should be known, I should maybe say, <laughs> but it's acknowledged in up-to-date research when we talk about the enteric nervous system, which basically is the second brain of the body or our um, neurological system of our gut, okay? And so there's a definite inner working kind of bilateral communication pathway between the brain and the gut. And we do know that there's a chicken and egg relationship with those that have anxiety, brain fog, and racing thoughts with a higher amount of inflammatory chemicals in their body. And this tends to further perpetuate the feelings of anxiousness or panic via the surge of excitatory neurotransmitters in response to the presence of these inflammatory chemicals. So what this basically means is that if the body is dealing with inflammation, the gut says, oh my gosh, something's wrong okay? And it puts out more epinephrine or these excitatory neurotransmitters that say, alarm, alarm, something's wrong. So then the brain responds and goes into an upregulated HPA axis response or fight or flight mechanism starts to go and and become upregulated or released. And meanwhile, we're potentially still consuming foods that are giving us more blood influence of inflammation, right? And so it can be a definite chicken and egg relationship, especially when you layer on the emotional connection that often we eat to tame our anxiety, Mm -hmm. right? If we're feeling restless or anxious, sometimes we eat to try to seek that dopamine or that, um, numbing food coma effect. And unfortunately, a lot of those go-to trigger foods can continue can, can, can continue to perpetuate this drive of inflammation and thus the influence of fight or flight mode. And so it goes.
2: Yeah. So reaching for comfort foods like corn chips or, you know, chocolate that's got a whole mess of refined sugar in it or something might not be the best choice. Yes.
1: Yes. So, you know, we actually see by managing like C reactive protein in the blood as one marker that's associated with mood instability, depression, and anxiety. And so, you know, inflammation in itself, beyond upregulating those fight-or-flight chemicals, inflammation in itself can also interfere with the way that our neurotransmitters dock in the brain. And so it can drive things like, of course, insulin resistance. When we're talking about blood sugar metabolism, but it can also drive in some sense like neurotransmitter resistance where we're not getting optimized expression and function. And so if you think of inflammation in like catastrophic injury, that all makes sense to kind of dull down the racing thoughts and such. But if we're thinking of like, what if it's not a car accident? What if it's not a stab wound? What if it's the consumption of said corn chip, right? Or consumption of cupcake or whatnot? And um, you know, how does the body respond in a survival mode to protect our body from that quote unquote
2: injury? I love that analogy. And I think it really does kind of drive it home for a lot of people who are like, oh, you know. Corn chips once in a while, whatever it is, won't hurt. But really seeing what it can do on a physiological inflammatory level uh, can get us to remove those foods from our diet or at least observe our symptoms when we do reintroduce them.
1: Right. And that's the idea of this 12-week period, enough to really create this cellular reset. And then we will walk through today a little bit of how you may choose to play with reintroduction and determine your tolerance. But at least with this nice refresh of 12 weeks, you'll have enough of acute awareness of how that food, when reintroduced, impacts your
2: brain and your body. Okay. Awesome. So you identify, like the top five inflammatory foods as gluten corn, soy, sugar, and dairy. So let's walk through each one and just kind of talk briefly about the why behind its elimination, where to watch out for it in terms of like some hidden sources, and then we'll go into good substitutions that are whole food focused.
1: Yes. So, you know, the big picture of all of this is Not just to pull things that are pleasure or or these uh, comfort foods away from you, of course. It's to identify those that could create disruption within your brain chemistry, right? And so to really wring out the inflammation in the body, I like to eliminate all of them at the same time because you have to remember that food – if we're talking about food as medicine – Food is a double-edged sword where foods can provide nourishment as building blocks for our brain and mood health as far as neurotransmitters, mood stabilizers, but foods can also serve as destruction for our brain and body function. So we want to think about removal, and then the remaining part of the book will go into the abundance mode. But a lot of these foods mentioned that we're going to be avoiding for the first three months really create havoc in the body tied into industrialized food production, right? So we're talking about this influence from 18th, 19th century when we started eating in packaged products versus single ingredient foods. And we started seeing the industrialized revolution influencing from what used to be small-scale family farms, local food production into more of an industrialized product. And we see, of course, trends in research with this intake of food-like substances driving nutritional deficiency, obesity, of course, other inflammatory conditions like the rise of autoimmune disease and cancer and so much more. Um, And the concern that I see really in in a broad scope is that, you know, the standard American diet is predominantly made up of refined carbs. It is devoid of healthy fats. You know, the fats that are in the standard American diet are highly rancid. Um, and oxidized. And we don't see quality nourishing proteins or an abundance of antioxidant-rich non-starchy vegetables and berries and and herbs and seasonings and spices in the standard American diet. Unfortunately, we use chemical additives like excitotoxins to get flavor that otherwise an antioxidant-rich whole food herb could provide. Right. Right so <laughs> totally
2: wild. Totally, I mean, totally yeah,
1: wild. yeah. It's, it all starts with eating food. That's yep. always like, you know, it's like, you can't use food as medicine if you're not eating food. Yep. That's, The first entry point.
2: Um, (laughs) So yeah. Let's start with gluten because I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with our stance on this, but I think, you know, let's go a little bit deeper into what um, industrialization of wheat as a commodity crop actually did to influence gluten intolerance and, and kind of go down that rabbit hole a little bit.
1: Yeah. And also we'll for sure link, there's an episode on gluten, yes. I think it's called like "Are you still eating gluten?" Yes. <laughs> or yep. something yep. like that. Um, so we'll link that in the show notes too. But you know, so gluten is a protein, and it's found in various grains um, and generally the wheat family. So spelt, kamut, triticale, um, also in barley, farro, and rye. And um, we've seen gluten intolerance as a dramatic increase over the past decade, um, and and maybe even now. So over the past two decades, but it does continue to rise, and a lot lot of the potential drivers would be the hybridization or, again, industrializing this once nutrient-dense crop into becoming something that's been hybridized to increase the yield, have more resistance to drought and um, temperature and pests, and have more calorie density. In fact, uh, the short dwarf wheat, which is what is commonly found in grocery stores, whether it's in white or wheat flour, the short dwarf wheat, crop um, is found to be significantly higher in gluten, specifically gliadin, which is the primary inflammatory component in gluten. And this was actually, we talk about in the gluten episode, a funding through our government to create an obesogenic crop when the draft weight uh, was too low, right? So when we were talking from World War I to World War II, the population was underweight um, as far as those that met the draft age. So we created this obesogenic crop. Unfortunately, when it hit the market, we were already non-concerned with weight gain because the American society is eating more industrialized foods. So that really just added insult to injury. And that hit at the same time that we c- recommended 8 to 11 slices of bread a day and more whole grains. And whole grains means more added wheat germ and more added processed wheat products to bump up that fiber count. So it was definitely a, a trifecta of an impact, I believe, on
2: weight gain. Totally wild. And I feel like you could like drop the mic right there. <laughs> and that would be enough for many people who are you know looking for weight loss to avoid this obesogenic ingredient.
1: Yeah, for but sure. But there's right? more. Yes, there is more. So gliadin, though, as I mentioned, which is kind of the main irritating component of gluten, it's not digested or broken down uh, well by our digestive tract. Um, so the enzymes in our digestive tract don't do very well breaking this down, and it can cause havoc in our body. We see in uh, research studies correlation to fatigue, acne, loose stools, constipation, depression, and anxiety, which is very important with the premise of this book. Um, And we see beyond inflammatory response that the gliadin can actually interfere with our opioid receptors in the brain. So we can see this addictive tendency with consumption of gluten as well as mood disturbances. In fact, in my pediatric population, when we're dealing with children that are dealing with Outburst, anger, and aggression. Gluten and dairy are the two that I pull out because both of them interfere. There's caseomorphin and gluteomorphin. And these proteins um, definitely can interfere with that feedback mechanism of our opioid receptors, which can create addictive tendencies and also irritability. Um, and we do see a lot of studies that look at schizophrenia specifically with the blood brain barrier influence of that gluteomorphin crossing the blood-brain barrier and contributing to anxiety, depression, and mental illness.
2: That's huge.
1: Yes. Huge.
2: huge. So yeah,
1: I mean, it's known pro-inflammatory. It actually crosses the blood-brain barrier and can interfere with our neurotransmitters docking favorably, as well as upregulating the opioid impact, which can drive that addictive tendency and outrage. Um, And then we do know further, if we're connecting to the idea of the gut-brain access, that the uh, gliadin has an interference with our gut function. So we know that grains in general, but gluten specifically, the Latin translation is glue. Um, So they have a higher amount of lectins, which are some of those anti-nutrients in plants that can really create havoc on the gut lining And we know that gluten interferes specifically with zonulin, which is like the the gatekeeper of our gut integrity. So when zonulin is interfered with, that opens our gut barrier to allow more food particles to leak into the bloodstream. So regardless of if you deal with digestive intolerance to gluten, you're going to have an upregulation or an increased release of particles into the bloodstream when gluten is consumed within that meal sitting.
2: Sure. And then grains have a similar effect, at least from that stickiness factor. So I know you go beyond gluten removal into removal of other grains as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, all grains. And that goes without saying, when you're going to go to less than 30 grams of carbs, (laughs) you you just can't fit those guys in there. Yeah. And so it's definitely a paleo approach within that for certain.
2: Um, And then what about, Ali, some hidden sources beyond just barley, rye, spelts, and all of their byproducts and bread and things that are super obvious? What are some other places that we're getting glutened?
1: Yes. So dressings are a big one to watch for actually, and like gravies and sauces. So you would want to order at a restaurant, even if you're eating keto, like maybe it's a steak with Brussels and it has like a pan sauce. You'd always want to make sure that you request gluten-free because often they'll add flour to thicken things. And then also when we're looking at things like, um, of course, soy sauce and Asian foods, unless it's tamari, which is gluten-free soy sauce, it's going to have gluten in it. And soy is another one of my fives. So you're better off completely just eliminating that world and using coconut aminos and doing more of that savory umami type profile within your own household.
2: They do have coconut aminos travel packs, you guys. I think I've talked about before having to take those with me to my in-laws' house. (laughs) Yeah, for
1: sure, for sure. And, um, you know, gluten is one to really watch out for, especially if you do notice an intolerance and you notice that you feel significantly improved removing it, then you might even take it a step further and look at, like, your cosmetics and such. But for the intent of the anti-anxiety diet, I really – solely focus on it within the diet and then if you have celiac disease you have to get a lot tighter on the parts per million of concentration in like shampoos and such and we talk about more of that in the uh, gluten episode so we'll be sure to link that
2: awesome okay next one let's talk we talked a little bit about it with the example of a corn chip but (laughs) let's let's go down the rabbit hole on corn and talk a little bit about the influence of genetically modified corn here
1: Yes. So corn is unfortunately usually the go-to when you pull gluten out of the diet um, if you're not going tight paleo because... You know, corn is, quote-unquote, gluten-free. Um, but yes, 88% of the corn is what the FDA.gov is apparently at right now with the statistics. So 88% of the corn on the market is genetically modified. And that means that basically any industrialized product which contains a corn additive, and this includes things like maltodextrin, dextrose, um, the erythritol, right, which is a corn sweetener in the keto world. Um, Unless it states non-GMO, we would be assuming that corn-derived products um, and their byproducts are going to have the GMO as well. And GMO stands for genetically modified organism. And there's two forms of GMO corn. There is BT corn, which stands for the BT endotoxin, and there's Roundup Ready corn. They're both pretty gnarly and creepy in the sense that, uh, <laughs> yeah, BT uh, crop was basically designed to kill a susceptible insect, and um, it's a part of the plant that's going to contain this BT protein. Okay, and so if the insect, usually like the ringworms that eat at the top of the corn husks, this is what this was developed for. So if that worm is eating the corn, um, within minutes, the protein that BT compound binds to the gut wall of the insect and the the insect stops feeding, and within hours, their gut wall breaks down, and um, they actually go into sepsis. Right, so their guts literally explode, and they they die. <laughs> um, they go into septicemia. The bacteria multiply within their their blood, and their colon explodes. So. That's kind of a consideration of a driver towards leaky gut, I would say, to the extreme. Um, And yes, that's a, a dose within that corn to influence insects, but it still doesn't sound like something I want in my body or I want within my household members consuming. Nope. The other GMO crop is called Roundup Ready. And it's able to withstand higher amounts of the herbicide glyphosate. Uh, This is the active ingredient in Roundup, right? And so we have seen that glyphosate has been linked in countless research studies as a neurotoxin and an endocrine disruptor. So it can actually throw off our neurotransmitters that regulate our mood and our stress response as well as cause nerve damage blood sugar imbalance, and hormone imbalance. And this is like, there's clinical research studies that show individuals in agricultural environments that have glycerin, higher amounts of glyphosate in their urine as a byproduct having these issues. So, you know, whether it's working as an endotoxin to explode the insides of an insect's gut and probably having some abrasive influence on ours, or whether the, the GMO crop is going to mean higher amounts of toxic neural compounds in the uh, agricultural pesticide used, This is not a positive thing for our body. Um, So that's a huge impact on itself, just on the fact that 88% of the corn and the corn bride products are GMO. The other thing completely unique to corn in its structure as well, is that it's high in linoleic acid, which is a type of polyunsaturated omega-6 fatty acid. So when we're trying to sequester inflammation in the body, we want to regulate the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. Omega-6 is pro-inflammatory, omega-3 is anti-inflammatory. So Corn and soy being high omega-6 are foods that we want to reduce in our diet for that reason alone when we're trying to wring out inflammation to help to ensure that the brain is working optimally.
2: Got it. So that might even be a good argument for EPA, DHA as a fish oil supplement to balance out that ratio even further beyond just removal of corn to kind of undo some of the the damage done.
1: Most definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Um, and then corn obviously is going to include popcorn, cornmeal, cornstarch, high fructose corn syrup's a big one, um, corn oil, which I think is this sneaky one that we can talk yes. about, um, yes. grits. But what are some of the other hidden sources so that corn oil I know comes up a lot in restaurants and can be disguised on a package label as just vegetable oil?
1: Yes, yes. So like mozzola and all those types of things, they might just say vegetable oil, but it often is – it might be a combination of corn and soy oil, but we definitely regardless want that out of our body. It's highly processed and it's uh, highly rancid, uh, which, you know, our – cell membranes are comprised of fats. So you don't want your membrane comprised of low nutrient quality fats that are oxidized and rancid that's going to influence your cellular communication. So this is where we really need to pull out these industrialized foods and they're going to have negative feedback on the way our cells communicate. And then on beyond the oil side of corn like I said, a lot of the fillers. So dextrin, maltodextrin, mannitol, a lot of sugar alcohol, sorbitol, sucralose, sweet and low, all use corn in them. And that's just another reason, xylitol, <laughs> just another reason of why I don't like non-caloric sweeteners.
2: Yeah. And we talked a lot about corn used as a filler, even for fiber components and things like that in some oh. of the keto products in our Real Food Keto episodes. So I'll make sure that we link to that as well.
1: Absolutely.
2: Okay, and then kind of in the similar boat in terms of the GMO influence, let's talk about soy. So, worse than corn, better than corn, equal playing you know, fields. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think, I think, I think it really does depend on the individual. And um, I know you and I of these five, we'll, we'll get there in a moment, have different reactions. <laughs> you know, so I think we can acknowledge that both are are not. A beneficial nutrient-dense food. And soy is actually um, at 93% of the soy in the country and in in the products that are offered are genetically modified. And yeah, so 93 and 88 are not good percentile (laughs) to have as far as GMO presence. And the majority of the GMO soybean produced are also Roundup ready. So the similar consequences that I was mentioning with the glyphosate toxic residue. So there's that neurotoxin and endocrine influence. And an issue with soy as well is that the glyphosate kills plants by actually interfering with the production of essential amino acids, phenylalanine, tyrosine, and tryptophan. And all three of those essential amino acids that are interfered with through the genetic modification all have influences on our mood stability and as reducers of anti of anxiety. Excuse me. So you know, tryptophan being the most known one as a precursor or building block to serotonin, but tyrosine helps with dopamine production. So those three um, influences on a neurotransmitter level are direct as far as the consumption of soy goes, and and one that would really be especially expressed when it is a genetically modified crop, which is 93% of the soy out there. Um, So we want to watch out for soy also, as I mentioned, because of that 3-6 ratio. Soy is a higher amount of omega-6 as well, so a pro-inflammatory crop anyway. And then we know that in the isolated form um, that there can be negative influences on hormones, driving estrogen dominance. And then we also know in a whole food form like edamame that phytates um, are commonly going to be seen that can influence nutrient uh, absorption. So phytates can block nutrient absorption. And this is why the traditional or more therapeutic forms of soy that I'm okay with, but for focus on the book, I try to keep out to just keep it more black and white. But things like miso um, or tamari, as I mentioned, which is a gluten-free fermented soy sauce or tempeh, may have more health-redeeming properties. And these are things that you may be able to bring in after the 12-week elimination because they, with their probiotics and the fermentation process, have reduced phytates. And if you're choosing organic, of course, you can bypass that GMO element, Um, But those are really the only traditional forms. So much of soy now is going to be high industrialized, new processed food. And we're going to see it in similar places that we saw the corn as far as fillers and in bars and um, adding protein in that isolated soy protein Um, in the oils as well. Like vegetable oil can also have the soy in it. Um, We're also looking for salad dressings. A lot of them, they'll say made with olive oil, but it'll have soybean oil. And then olive oil is like the 30th ingredient. Um, Mayonnaise and and a lot of those like aiolis and spreads are going to have soy in there as well. Butter substitutes, any of those are going to be – now. Luckily, we're moving from partially hydrogenated, which is those trans fats, but we're still having some form of hydrogenation, which is not optimal. And that's when the food industry tries to make a liquid solid at room temperature.
2: Sure. And then even beyond that, I know soy lecithin is a big sneaky one that goes into things like chocolate bars as an emulsifier or an agent to keep them like consistent. Creamy. uh, Yeah. Creamy. Um, And you find that soy lecithin like all over the place. So really getting good at reading our food labels with the application of this.
1: Totally. And, and when you're looking at the level of like, okay, really is soy lecithin in my otherwise organic chocolate bar going to interfere with my anxiety or going to interfere with my mental health? And my answer would be quite possibly yes. And we think of inflammation as a, a, a trickling effect to like a dam, right? So if you have some form of presence, and, and I mentioned, you know, soy and corn and gluten really are pretty ubiquitously found in Foods. So if you're walking any middle aisle of your grocery store, even if it's Whole Foods, it's going to be darn near impossible to find a product that doesn't have a filler from one of those three ingredients. And so if you're still consuming these at varied amounts in what seems to be residual or small amounts, it could be just tipping you over that moderate level from Thrive mode and, and you're still maintaining at just that that borderline okay mode. And so it really would be important to really fully ring this out with 100% confidence interval, by eating whole,
2: real, single ingredient foods. Okay, awesome. And then talking about chocolate bars, sugar really enters us into the world of keto um, as an element of the anti-anxiety diet. But before we go into that, I want to have a word from today's episode sponsor, Further Food.
1: Yes, so further food products are the highest quality food as medicine supplements in the form of collagen, gelatin, and other superfood powders. Their collagen is grass-fed, pasture-raised, and wild-caught, (laughs) non-GMO certified, hormone-free, and antibiotic-free.
2: Yes, we met Ashley and her team this year at KetoCon, or I guess last year now. We were super pumped to find a small women-owned and operated company making really high quality collagen and gelatin. So each of the three women on the core team actually has... A personal experience with chronic illness, be it IBS, Crohn's and thyroid disease. And, you know, they took this vision to heal their own bodies into creating a community driven, comprehensive platform of food based wellness and food based health products.
1: Yes. So We have transitioned both Becky and I to fully using their collagen and continue to get really great results. I personally brought collagen as a daily regimen in postpartum timeframe when I was having issues with hair and nail health. Um, after having Stella. And I have found that their collagen works well in both hot and cold recipes. Um, I've been using it in pretty much all of my like keto baked muffins and pancakes. I have a lot of recipes in the anti-anxiety diet cookbook that are featuring either collagen or gelatin to get that gut restoration and a quality protein uh, source without driving food inflammatory
2: impact. Yes. And we're super pumped that they've put out this year, a gelatin product. So I know I've been using that a lot at home to like thicken sauces and things of that nature. They also have a daily turmeric tonic, which is great as like a turmeric latte with coconut milk. And they recently came out with their mindful matcha, which is high quality matcha combined with some adaptogenic herbs and spices. And it's delicious.
1: So adaptogens are always going to layer on with the already therapeutic of the anti-inflammatory turmeric or the matcha with the L-theanine for brain boost. We're getting that nice synergy layer of food as medicine of stress support for that HPA access. So super stoked to have Further Food as today's podcast sponsor. Um, Their products are amazing. We can't say enough things and we find them to be at a very competitive competitive, affordable price point, And we love their transparency of sourcing. So you can get kind of this, just like with our supplement line, this potency and purity with a good confidence interval. Um, you can go to furtherfood.com and use the code AllieMillerRD at checkout. We will also put a link in the show notes that you can go direct in through. But if you use the co- code AllieMillerRD, you will save 10% off your order online.
2: Awesome. And for those of you in the Houston area, I just got our boxes of Further Foods products last week, and they'll be on the shelf this week if you are coming in for supplement pickup. So FYI, you can get them there too. Yeah,
1: Yeah, totally.
2: (laughs) Okay. So back to our last two of the top five pro-inflammatory foods. Let's talk about sugar, and then let's talk about dairy.
1: Yes. So sugar may be the most addictive of them. I'm not sure because of the opioid receptor impact with gluten. Um, But I find behaviorally sugar to be a big one. And we do see brain scans actually that we've probably talked about in past episodes that have demonstrated similar addictive patterns to sugar and high glycemic food to that of cocaine as far as the brain activity and addictive pathways. So, you know, carbohydrates do stimulate serotonin and endorphin release and that aids in that feel-good signaling to our brain. Um, But unfortunately, the intake of a simple or refined carbohydrate accelerates the process, which gives us that pick-me-up or sugar high. But we know that with naked carbs or dynamic glycemic index hit – as quickly as we go high, we get just as rapid of a drop and that dynamic drop or slump can make us feel fatigued. It can dampen our mood and it can really create that vicious cycle of sugar addiction, right? So you have your high carb lunch and then you need a soda in the afternoon and the candy bar and so forth. And This sugar train of peaks and valleys is not sustainable, especially when we're talking about peaks with anxiety and depression, because it can often leave us kind of victim to that blood sugar metabolism.
2: Yes. And I think that's a really important point that you made. You know, we're reaching for it as a pick-me-up to fuel that dopamine high, but it's not giving us any of the building blocks to actually create those neurotransmitters. In fact, it may be further depleting them, which is huge.
1: That's an important point to make for sure. Yeah. I mean, and then the the low blood sugar crash that follows that sugar high has many symptoms that tie with like panic, right? So shakiness, tension, irritability, short fuse. Um, actually dealing with like cold and clammy body temperature changes, all can be influence of hypoglycemia. Um, And we find that to be a a very tight overlap with anxiety and altered brain chemical balance. And and that can create this like binging addictive tendency. So it's one that we really like you to break up with um, because of that addictive tendency, because of the irregularity of the impact on our blood sugar and also because of the fact that sugar itself is pro-inflammatory. So we know that excess sugar drives glycation processes. So we talked about these ages or advanced glycation end products in our two episodes where we hit on Alzheimer's and dementia. But Sugar is going to create these ages that can play a role in the pathology of um, your neuropathy, um, increasing your A1C, driving diabetes. We can see cardiovascular disease, generalized aging processes, and cognitive decline as these ages build up in the body in an inflammatory response to elevated blood sugar and excessive sugar intake. So... All things to be mindful of. And, you know, sugar used to, when we would see the word sugar on a label, we used to be able to know, oh, that that was cane derived, but it is important to know that it can be definitely derived from genetically modified beets, which another GMO, yes, which goes into the whole world of the concerns we've discussed with corn and um with soy, but um, sugar can also be corn derived now under just the name sugar. So that was one of the fight backs of the the high fructose corn syrup labeling. Now, corn, sugar, and corn syrup can just be labeled as sugar as well. So regardless- tricky. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, regardless of the source, we don't want to see that word sugar. Um, We don't want to see sucrose, glucose, corn syrup, high fructose corn syrup, of course, um, and, uh, maltose and these types of things are going to be found in sweetened foods as well as savory foods. You know, now it's very difficult to find a bread without sugar added, um, condiments, salad dressings, bars, cereals, pretty much all processed foods are going to have a refined form of sugar.
2: Yep. And then I know in the anti-anxiety diet phase one, we're going to pull out all of those, you know, even naturally occurring sweeteners, but in phase two, or if you're doing a little carb cycling, you might be including some real food forms of sweeteners.
1: Absolutely. So things like dates or raw and filtered honey or coconut sugar or robust dark amber maple syrup or molasses or sucanat. And even the use of fruit would be your best choices. And you know, I acknowledge that sometimes we need a little bit of sweet, but I want your body to become fat adapted first. And that's why that first six weeks, we have a no negotiation with the tight keto. And then again, when you're finding your (laughs) quote unquote sweet spot of carb control, you may be able to use some of these in and still stay keto or as Becky said, as a carb cycle.
2: Sure. And I know that real food keto podcast episode I was referring to earlier, we go down the rabbit hole of um, non-caloric sweeteners as well. And our episode on why we hate non-caloric sweeteners is a good place to start just for that mechanism of actually breaking up with that sweet taste. Yes, for sure. Okay. Last one. Let's talk about dairy. And I know this one, we have an episode pros and cons of dairy because it can get controversial, but not necessarily um, when you're talking about influence and anxiety.
1: Yeah. So like the A2 casein and all that information is going to be in the pros and cons of dairy. It's a very uh, detail-oriented episode, so I'll save that to the side. And if we're just talking about the irritants in connection with inflammation and mood – we would identify, yes, lactose and casein as the two primary irritants. It's important to note that, you know, as we age, we generally reduce our digestive enzymes. And when I was talking about how, for instance, gluten is not properly digested by most people, it's important to also note that under stress, right, we only make about a quarter of the amount of digestive enzymes that we would make if we were in that rest and digest parasympathetic mode. So as we age, we reduce our enzyme production. This is where people in their elderly population are majority lactose intolerance. but you need lactase, an enzyme to break down lactose. And then casein is a form of protein. So there's whey and casein. Casein is the one that tends to be more drama-causing in the body. And again, if you are lacking digestive enzymes, you're going to have higher amounts of casein that will cross the gut into the bloodstream. And casein also crosses into the blood-brain barrier. And just like gluten, can have that morphine-like influence via caseomorphin. This can drive that addictive tendency in mood disturbance that I mentioned that was tied with like schizophrenia and outrage as well as autism and ADHD. So gluten and dairy are the two foods I pull out, like I said, for all kiddos or adults really if you're dealing with kind of outburst activity. Casein we also found can drive inflammation in the body um, and can mimic gluten. So if it's someone that's dealing with celiac disease, I also... Pull casein out. Um, I allow them things like ghee, which is casein-free and clarified form of butter. But the biggest thing that I would emphasize is if someone with celiac disease wanted to bring in dairy, that they would take Digest-Aid, our enzyme that has that DPP-4 as well as comprehensive enzymes to break down carbs, protein, and fat and ox bile and HCL, because as the pH of the stomach changes, as the enzymes reduce, we are more susceptible to the inflammation from both gluten and dairy. And I think that's an important thing to kind of hone in on when we're talking about removal of these foods, and then the sustainability of the anti-anxiety diet after these 12 weeks of really what is your your tolerance level. Because unfortunately, dairy is a big staple in the keto world, right? It's like you remove carbs and you stick dairy in. And I think that's where a lot of people are starting to see awesome outcomes as they remove that as a staple from their diet.
2: Sure. And then there certainly are benefits, like you mentioned, to potentially bringing back something like ghee or grass-fed whey a little bit later on down in the elimination process.
1: Yes. In fact, I allow, especially for people that are doing the anti-anxiety diet and are like pescatarian or may have some protein limitations, I allow as early as week seven, halfway through this 12 week of elimination, potentially bringing in ghee and grass-fed whey, but those should be brought in individually one per week um, as you'd progress in the same structure of like reintroduction phase of an elimination diet. But if you have enough diversity without those, I would keep them out the full 12 weeks. And I think ghee is one that both of us use pretty regularly in our household Um, I consume butter uh, daily as well and and don't notice intolerance. And I consume whey a couple times a week. Um, And those all work really favorably for my body. But but more on that in a moment.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, dairy can even have some sneaky hidden sources. Like the obvious ones would be yogurt and cheese and butter and milk. Uh, But processed meats, you can also find dairy in for sure or sources of dairy, um, artificial flavorings.
1: Casein is found in like canned tuna, not the wild planet. And, and generally speaking, a lot of these fillers you're never going to see in the products that we have on our Amazon store, obviously. So we'll kind of do some of that vetting for you. But yes, casein can be found in a lot of uh, protein products, like a lot of um, jerkies and bars, and then can be found as a fat replacer. Um, so when things are low fat, watch out for for the dairy additives.
2: Sure. Okay. So essentially what we're looking at is a clean keto protocol. Um, But as you mentioned, there are just so many hidden ingredients that, you know, to make your clinical outcome successful, you have to really be mindful of sauces and all of these other packaged products products and hidden ingredients, um, to really, really, you know, drill down and bring out inflammation. And then I think dairy free and corn free is probably a new layer for a lot of listeners. Like you said, dairy is a big staple in a lot of recipes, especially in the keto world and corn is just in so, so many products.
1: Totally. And, you know, everyone's level of reactivity, again, if you feel mediocre in your body, I really think you need to go 110% to ring this out to feel amazing. Um, I was someone, for instance, who always felt like I could tolerate gluten. Like I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm tight with my diet. And, but yet I could have a, you know, if we were at a really restaurant, I would have their in-house made pasta and have a couple bites or whatnot. And post Stella, I'm not sure if it was the combination of the emergency C-section, the IV antibiotics, um, the manipulation because of how she was breached and actually engulfed in my uterus, if that was distressing when they had to shift my intestines over. I don't know, but all I know is that if I have any form of gluten in my body post I feel like there is a scalpel scraping my insides. <laughs> so, you know, and I don't think it really took a tight elimination to notice that sensitivity. And that doesn't mean, yes, there was an emotional distressing and a physiological distressing influence that could have made my body more hypersensitive. But I really prefer to be in thrive mode versus this swollen distended, ouch belly that I get from gluten that I would not have known of had I not gone 110% with removing
2: it. Sure. And I think that's the big aha of like doing a full on elimination. And if you add it back and feel like total crap, like I know gluten doesn't work for me actually none of these work for me. For <laughs> I'm someone who, who tends to be a little bit more dairy free. And and now I notice more of like a, a skin congestion or like a little bit of breakouts when I include dairy, which is sad because I do like, you know, some cheese and can get away with ghee for sure. But everyone's kind of got their, their threshold. And I know yes. corn like works for me in air quotes, but then my fingers swell up the next day. So... Yeah. (laughs) Noticing all of these like little nuances and yeah, figuring out threshold and um, trying to make substitutions whenever possible.
1: Yeah. And both you and I cook so much at home, both because we enjoy the nourishment of eating local from our farmer's market and just being in control of the quality. Right. And, and, and quite frankly, I think that we both make foods taste better than a lot of restaurants anyway. (laughs) Um, I agree. (laughs) But regardless, we're also huge proponents of the digest aid, like anytime we leave the home and, and even meals at home to support that system. So not only are you making things less abrasive, but you're enhancing your nutrient absorption. So really important for people that are running on high altitude of stress demand to use that digest aid in your favor on both ends of the spectrum of food as medicine.
2: For sure. And then I'm sure we'll talk about GI lining here in a moment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
2: okay. Let's go over just some simple substitutions because again, we never want to pull something out without having, you know, a nutrient dense replacement or something to kind of rely on in the interim.
1: Yes. So maybe we'll just go back and forth and name our favorites. And um, I have an awesome table. I tried to make this book with so much application. So yes, you didn't feel like a a rug was pulled out from under you. So if we're talking about like gluten in the form of carbs as a pasta or carbs as a pizza crust, my favorite replacement is uh, zoodles, zucchini noodles. There's so many now spiralized vegetables that you can buy pre-spiralized we have our favorite spiralizer on the Amazon store. You can saute saute these with olive oil and herbs, um, throw on a clean marinara like Raos, which uses olive oil and doesn't have soybean oil in it, um, and add a protein of choice. And it's super easy. And you could even bypass any of the noodle base itself and just eat that clean bolognese on a bed of chopped up greens like massaged kale.
2: Super simple and delicious and you still get all of the savory comfort food flavors and then absolutely um, maybe carbs as a pizza crust. So one of my favorites is to do like a cauliflower crust although typically those do have dairy in them so that's a consideration um, or doing like the um, even the simple mills um, I believe their pizza crust is pretty clean. I think there's some arrowroot flour in it they have a pizza crust mix, mix that can work. Or if you're not wanting to like have to roll out and make a dough, which is complicated in and of itself, you could do like a spaghetti squash boat. I believe right. that's the name of the recipe on our blog. It's like spaghetti squash pizza boats that I'll yeah. link to.
1: Yep. And then in the effect, it's skinny ebook. We have a recipe for pizza in a bowl. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Where it's pretty much like a bolognese with like pepperoni. It's so good, and lacinato kale in there, and and that all works really beautifully. Um, how about soy? So we talked about soy sauce, coconut aminos. I think that's pretty much the, the one yeah. <laughs> go to as a, as a replacement tool. Um, you can get that umami flavor also with like caramelizing onions, sauteing mushrooms, but coconut liquid aminos are pretty much your one for one in like a stir fry or like if you're wanting to do uh, sashimi pieces of raw sushi.
2: Sure. And like fish sauce could be something else, definitely a more (laughs) distinct flavor, something else to kind of channel that same flavor profile that I really like.
1: Totally agree. And then dairy. Um, So dairy as a beverage you can replace with like coconut milk. Um, I'm a big fan if you're using coconut milk that you use canned um, and you want to use one that doesn't have guar gum or any binders or fillers. So like the endangered forest, simple coconut milk or Trader Joe's has one almond milk or nut milks of choice. We have tons of recipes on the blog for homemade nut milks and super simple to do. And nut milks are probably going to be more versatile in recipes than the coconut milk. I'm a big fan of coconut milk, so I put it in a lot of things, but um, it does have a stronger flavor and it will have more fat. So be mindful of that. You might want to dilute that within your own recipes.
2: Sure. And then beyond dairy replacement um, vegetable and seed oils and some of those industrialized oils we always recommend doing you know coconut oil um, in the home tallow lard um, or avocado oil and the refined version of coconut, or avocado would be good for higher heat applications. So like above 350 degrees um, mm-hmm. for like pan frying or stir frying. And then beyond that, using avocado oil um, on salads, if it's virgin avocado oil, we could do macadamia nut oil and olive oil more for raw application or just kind of a finishing.
1: Yeah. And then the last two dairy sections now more in a denser form of dairy, cheese and yogurt. Um, so I have actually an awesome recipe in the anti-anxiety diet for a spicy, a spicy cashew nut cheese. And then um, I have a simple coconut yogurt. So those are really good replacements. And other replacements for cheese would be to do like an herbaceous sauce. It just depends on the application. But I'll do a lot of like pestos and things like that. Um, and then there are a bunch of fun different like
2: nut cheese options that you can play with. Sure. And there's becoming better options, I'll say, for coconut yogurt that's shelf-stable if you don't want to make your – or sorry, not shelf-stable. Excuse me. On the shelves, though. Uh, wouldn't be shelf-stable because it's cultured. But refrigerator shelf, um, mm-hmm. like Colina is a good brand that's yep. out there that doesn't have any, you know, added binders or fillers. Um, yeah. So more and more products coming out every day. Um, But these are all such great ideas. Let's talk a little bit about like the emotional elements and the withdrawal aspect of removing all these foods. So again, like pulling the rug out from someone. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think it's so important that you maintain a level of empowerment throughout the process to keep a positive perspective. So it's, you know, establishing mantra is really important. So like I have the ability to heal my brain-gut connection. I have the ability to know what it feels like to be panic-free. I have the ability to slow down my racing thoughts through diet. And um, when we do that, that can really help us to maintain – this victor versus victim mentality or like, oh, I can't have. Um, And so having empowered perspective is really important. And then nailing down your why, why are you doing this? So I choose to consume foods that honor and nourish my body to support balanced mood and hormone health or whatever it is, right? And so, and beyond the why of why you're doing it, the book and what we've just discussed gives you the why you should remove it, right? So you should be empowered by the process of, I am choosing to nourish my body with whole foods that don't drive the XYZs that we just discussed, you know, per ingredient, of course. Um, And then the last thing I would think of as far as the identification of physical versus emotional. So like, If you're trying to support your body for best outcomes and you know what you, quote unquote, should be doing and you know why it's important to do it and you're dealing with a craving, it's going to take some time to connect with the body to determine is that craving emotional or physical. And if it's food specific, it's most definitely emotional you know, and so trying to channel potentially, maybe there's an intuitive connection. Like if you're craving yogurt, maybe your body does need probiotics. So maybe using another cultured food would be favorable, like a pickled vegetable or using the coconut yogurt. If you wanted something a little bit more on the, uh, sweeter versus savory, I suppose, flavor profile. Um, but asking yourself, you know, does this sensation, is it is it food-specific? Um, do I have any physiological response to this, like a blood sugar crash or a headache? Um, and if not, it's probably an emotional thing. And we just want to find a good replacement that we feel pleased with on an emotional level, but also that we can surrender to.
2: Awesome. I think those are really great tools for kind of starting to deal with the, you know, potential emotional distress that can come with removing for a whole sure. bunch of foods that, you know you're either addicted to on a a physiological level or there's an emotional element for sure. Um, And then what about other strategies for successful application of the anti-anxiety diet?
1: So when you're removing things, I would recommend using indulgences that can be made in advance or simple indulgences, right? So like an eighty percent dark chocolate with nut butter, right? Um, and finding things that can work well in your favor that are on limits and that are quick go tos. Um, and then planning ahead is going to be extremely important. So have some structure of a meal plan. I give you a two week meal plan within the book um, that can be super helpful. And then the last thing I would say is keep it simple. Like you don't have to always make a cheese replacement, you could just use avocado. Like, you know, like you, if yep. you want something creamy, just put some avocado on it or uh, eat some olives if you want something to snack on with your almonds. Um, and so keep it really simple. And that's going to be the biggest strategy, I think, to make this a sustainable change.
2: Sure. It doesn't have to be complicated to taste good. Uh, so Yes. Beyond that um, and kind of feeling confident in your why, I know that at times things can be totally out of your control or you are dining out or you do choose to indulge. Let's talk a little bit more about the use. We mentioned digesting, but use of um, GI lining, kind of how these would come in during that elimination process.
1: Yes. So the digestate enzyme, I recommend, especially in the beginning, um, to use daily like three to five times. And then anytime you're dining out to help with that um, gliadin and the uh, caseomorphin influence. So we will get that influence specific with the digestate enzyme with the DPP4, which is a unique component to a digestive enzyme formula. Um, So daily prior to meals would be the digestate. And then the GI lining support, a scoop in the evening, And then you may – that's going to help to kind of coat and protect the gut lining while you sleep and to really give you a good return on your investment of the diet strategy that you're applying and help you for resilience going forward. So you may tolerate then moderate amounts of these foods as you progress. Um, If you are drinking alcohol, if you are – traveling and dining out for more than one meal, I recommend doubling down and doing that that GI lining um, powder scoop uh, to try to really offset that risk or injury influence. And you want to think of both of these as like an insurance policy versus a permission slip, right? So they help to protect and then you do your best to navigate versus just throw your hands off the wheel and say, screw it. I took my GI lining and my digest aid let's do this. Um, but it will help you really as a tool to support your process um, so that you can create more, again, resilience. So so a really important piece of the puzzle.
2: Sure. And I think it's important too to understand that there is variation within you know reactivity of individuals. So some people may be more sensitive or notice trends a lot stronger than others within these inflammatory foods.
1: Yes. So especially those that are have been on an NSAID, um, like Aleve, Advil, Celebrex, any form of those pain management drugs which deteriorate or wear away at the gut lining – People that have been on antibiotics, um, people that are dealing with high stress or adrenal fatigue often have leaky gut. Um, and then if we have a low stomach acid on its own from the stress response or if we're using Tums or any form of a proton pump inhibitor like Nexium, Protonix, Omeprazole, um, all of those make us higher susceptibility to inflammation from these foods. And, you know, they're, they're going to vary. Like I said, you know, for me, gluten is the one that like I can blindly in a room be like, okay. I asked for gluten-free, but clearly my salmon was dredged in flour. Like that crispiness was not just the temperature. There's something off because I feel like, again, that scalpel sensation. Um, and, and you mentioned, Becky, dairy is one that you notice more on the skin. And so, you know, we're all going to have different feedback. Um, and we need to just be mindful of how we can protect our body so that if we mindfully indulge, we know the cost of
2: benefit influence. Exactly. Exactly. So – Let's talk to listeners a little bit to finish out today's episode about what to expect in the anti anxiety diet cookbook.
1: I'm so excited. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So, the cookbook is really focused on taking this scientifically dense approach of the anti anxiety diet book and showing you that you can be successful all while eating in abundance and diversity. So, I do reintroduce the six R concepts. Um, I walk you through a little bit deeper of this elimination diet with an intro reintroduction schedule. Um, I have a lot of content, of course, on probiotics as nature's Prozac, um, tools to help to continue to support gut lining tissue, and then um, the role of keto. And I go deeper in this cookbook in um, how we can use A low-carb, high-fat diet for children in what I call a phase 1.5, as well as breastfeeding mothers, and then um, how tight I recommend you going as far as carb control with healthy pregnancy. We talk about carb cycling. I go into details on why I uh, don't want you calling the keto police based on the the, uh, real food sweeteners and why I hate non-caloric sweeteners, and there's a lot of meal planning and prep. Um, as well as like, even like bento boxes and lunch options, there's going to be a two page feature on adult Lunchables, um, and planning lunches for your children, as well as a four week meal plan.
2: Awesome. And then my favorite part, let's talk about some of the recipes. So I've been getting to test and shoot these over the past couple of weeks that we've started on really hammering them out. Um, but let's go over some of your highlights of your favorites.
1: Yeah. So I'm really obsessed with the avocado pudding, um, which is so fun. It has a little bit of gelatin to uh, thicken it and um, it uses coconut milk and orange zest. It's really dreamy and um, photographs beautifully with some fresh kumquats on it, but a really great breakfast alternate. And um, also along that vein, a coconut chia cacao pudding that I'm actually snacking on and muting myself between bites today as we're as we're recording. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, there's tons of soups. Um, I have a cream of kale soup with pancetta chip. I have uh, I repeated the carrot bisque that's in the first book, which is super popular. A Thai green curry chicken soup, and then tons of savory. A lot of fresh salads. I have an antipasta salad with salami and olives and artichokes and cucumber, fresh herbs and tomatoes. A farmer's market salad with beautiful uh, watermelon radish in there and and um, fresh sprouts. Uh, what are some of the faves that you've done, Becky?
2: Oh, gosh. Um, that warming chicken thighs or the crispy rosemary chicken thighs with the breast yes. and leeks and like this really yummy creamy. Creamy sauce that has no dairy in it. Um, Yes. (laughs) Believe it or not, it's got coconut milk. Um, So, so good. Um, Again, the avocado pudding was definitely a hit. Byron really enjoyed helping eat that one. Um, Super pretty. And then I'm really excited about some of the indulgences like the lemon lavender CBD balls, the walnut maca caramels. Um, Oh, yeah. I'm going to be making the hemp nut bars with chocolate this week. So I'm pumped for some of the sweet treats.
1: Yes. And, um, Brady loved the crispy fish tacos. I think oh, the yeah. texture is yeah, great is perfect. And they're done in a cabbage cup. Um, and they're, they're amazing. I could eat those at least
2: once a week. A great way to get near omega threes. <laughs> Byron was like, they have almost like a fish stick type breading. <laughs> and like it actually really stays on and crisps up really nicely. And even for reheating, like the day after I photographed them, they were really, really good.
1: Awesome. Yay. I'm so excited to get this resource resource out for you guys and really take your food as medicine journey to the next level. If you don't have a copy yet of the Anti-Anxiety Diet, go on over to Amazon and make sure you grab one. And if you do, and it's on sale, I think it's like 10 something right now. I think it's like 30% off on Amazon right now. So go get it. Hopefully it'll still be on sale when you listen. And then if you have a copy, please, please go over to Amazon and leave a five-star review for the Anti-Anxiety Diet. Really hoping to break 100 reviews. And um, yeah, I mean, we're at 50 right now, which is a little bit of a damn shame. And I'm hoping (laughs) that more people can learn about this resource because everything we hear on feedback has been so empowering.
2: Yeah. And we know more than 50 people have read the book based on having to do a second print. So please hop on over and leave some love if this book has impacted your life in any way, shape, or form. And then, guys, if you're in Texas, come to San Antonio on March 14th to, is it Twig Bookshop, Bookstore? Twig. Uh, yeah. Twig, book, Twig Book something. Yeah. Yep. Bookstore. Twig. And hopefully by the time this airs, you can find out about an event we're doing with a potential live podcast um, recording on the following Friday somewhere in the Pearl District of San Antonio. Details at AllieMillerRD.com backslash events. Yes.
1: So thank you for listening. And remember, food as medicine is a double-edged sword. So hopefully you can apply some of the things that you're going to remove. And with all of our other episodes and the recipes we listed at the end here, you can nourish yourself also with abundance.
0: Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast.